0: You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga, certified financial planners and principals in Seattle based wealth management company, Empirical Wealth Management. This show is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning techniques to help you make a lifetime of smart financial decisions. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. Welcome to the show today. <laughs> Thank it's you very nice, much. Nice to have you here. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, it's very good to be here. If you'd like to uh call us or email us with a question or comment, if you're if you're perpondering uh a um, <laughs> Hang on, did you say perpondering? <laughs> <laughs> yes, perpondering. Um, preposterous. Uh, if you're pondering a financial decision, you know, and you you'd like to have us weigh in on it, we'd love to Use uh, whatever level of expertise we have available to us to help you get the best answer. You can uh, call during the show, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. And throughout the week, if you want to reach us here, we are uh, prepared to help you wherever you are at. And you can call us here at 1-800-923-4307. Feel free to ask for Ken or Ethan. And you can shoot us an email during the show and throughout the week if you want to submit a question or a topic or an idea. Um at contact at EMPI Radio. Lately, Ethan, on the show, we've been talking about uh current things like you know, prior to the Facebook IPO, we were strongly cautioning and recommending that investors don't invest that way. Um and I don't know what it closed at today, but I noticed in the last uh, week it had uh had been getting crushed. We're down to twenty nine, it looks like.
2: I think it was up somewhere in that. Up today zone. a little bit if I recall. Yeah,
1: five percent actually today. Just a little bit. Um I guess I got yeah, down into the twenty seven range. So yeah. um those are some of the just the timely things that uh we've been talking about and lately, Ethan. I know you have a variety of topics today. Sure. Um what is it you had on the docket?
2: Well, I thought for for one thing we could just—I uh, don't think we actually finished our the Facebook discussion, although it's obviously a little less timely at the, at the moment than last week. But uh, well, it's kind of like the vault item where we say we
1: take take when whether it's us, we say yeah. something or other financial individuals out there, we kind of put it in the vault and then pull it out later and talk about it.
2: Yeah. So I mean, we could—I I thought I could we could reframe or re-examine maybe. Uh, one last time, the the Facebook IPO and IPOs in general, and that sort of thing. And then uh, I had some uh, interesting news. I, I thought it was pretty pretty interesting. Um, come across my desk earlier today. Um, wow. Had to do with the sovereign debt crisis in Europe and how that kind of contrasts with the uh, financial crisis that, that we had in the U.S. Uh, a few years ago now. And uh, there was some interesting, I thought, uh, you know, commentary on those two things. So that we could talk a little bit about that uh, An art- article that we can kind of peruse a little bit and then maybe perhaps discuss, and then I think you have also a uh, a market update too, right? Yeah, we could we could cover that real yeah. quick if there's time. Yeah,
1: sure. or we could start with that. I mean, you want to leave do. with that? Sure, we usually do. Okay. Um, and uh, let me pull something up here as we do that. Um, and just want as we go over that, I want to encourage people to. Um, Talk a little bit about the way that we invest and uh, the way we kind of see where where research is at on investing, maybe, but relate that to the market update and what's gone on in some of the asset classes recently, and how that should or should not affect your decision going forward on on how you're allocating things. And so, if we look, Ethan, uh, maybe before we get into the general market levels, if we look at that as we come to a close here. In the the month of, of May uh, if you said hey what 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 kind of got hit the hardest because the market in general is trended down in May right and uh, we see is things like international companies uh, international small emerging markets um, you know that general category in those groups emerging markets emerging markets small some down in, in the 10 to 13 some percent for just for the month, um, quarter to date, if we look at that, uh, you're down fifteen to ten percent. You know, yeah, so those groups have gotten hit pretty hard, and it's no surprise given the news that's coming out of Europe on a day to day basis that that would that would make sense. Um, if you look at the. You know, the last single month, uh, inflation-protected securities tips uh, were up 1.19% in right. return just over the last month, and year-to-date they're up 4.42%, which is uh, pretty interesting given the low low yields that they started the year at and continue to be at. So, right. um, but when you get into the equity segment, the U.S. has done better, and uh, the U.S. large company has done better. Now when we build globally diversified portfolios, we tend to for the last if we look at the two thousand to now time frame during the period of the last decade even the from january two thousand through the end of two thousand nine where u s developed and and uh u s and and developed country the large index s and p and then just uh EFA, they didn't do too hot by themselves right the idea of this last decade was that you actually were flat or slightly down over a 10-year period, but the areas that we had been diversifying our clients into for that period of time, many had done significantly better, emerging markets, small, international sure. REITs, and so on and so forth. Um, in the long run, the differences in returns between equity asset classes shouldn't be as large uh, you know, as, as you tend to see them in shorter periods of yeah. time, right? So one asset class like emerging markets for a 10-year period um, might be up 10% a year when large U.S. companies could be actually down 9 tenths of a percent per year for that period. Over a, a longer period, you know, we get out to 20, 30 years and plus. Would, we, would you expect that kind of thing? Well, probably not. They'll probably start to converge closer together. Yeah,
2: they'll, yeah right, exactly.
1: And... Um, and, and, you know, you kind of, you kind of see over even now, if we go back 10 years and end to April 30, you see things like general emerging markets up 14% a year, you know, for that, the last 10 years. Uh, so when you make allocations to these asset classes, uh, at different times, the market's always speculating in very short periods of time on what, what areas are going to be Hitting difficulty or what areas are going to have the greatest opportunity. In the long run, there there tends to be this link between risk and return. And I wouldn't abandon my advice to you out there is do not do what most individuals do that have gotten below market rates of return, and that is abandon the asset classes that are currently not doing so hot. And we, you know, we've said this before, but oh, I, I think it's worthy... Given the month we've had uh, and what you've seen in those those particular asset classes, it wouldn't surprise me if you started to see money coming out of some of those areas and going into the areas that have done a little better. Right. But as prudent investors, we don't want to do that. In fact, what we want to do is continue to own those 10 to 15 unique asset classes, large U.S., small U.S., value, large value, small value, REITs, U.S. REITs, international REITs, small and large companies in developed countries around the world and small and large companies in emerging markets, value companies, maybe a little bit of commodities depending on the portfolio of equities that you have. Uh And you mix that in with a very diversified fixed income portfolio that for all intents and purposes has a... Every asset class has an expected return and a reason for being in that portfolio and in, in addition from a diversification perspective. And you take these opportunities to say, hey, if I get out of balance too far, I'll be buying more emerging markets at this time, not selling it because it's done poorly, right? Right. That takes a little bit of discipline, a little bit of understanding of, of your market history and how these the dynamics of how these things trend. And one of that is just realizing that it's very unpredictable in the short run. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that probably isn't a very good strategy is simply moving out of something that in the short term hasn't done as well as another asset class. Yeah. All right. Moving right along. So if we look at the Dow, uh, today's close was 12,393. About a year ago, we were at 12,569. So we're actually uh down now over the past 12 months rolling 12 month period Ethan mm-hmm. you got your 10 year treasury sitting at 1.57% yield last week that was uh, 1.77 so pretty low wow um you have uh gold sitting at 1566 and Ethan would you mind looking up gold for the chart for gold for the last for the month of may
2: yeah so um, going
1: through this I'd just like to know what it uh, exactly did. I know it was, it's down, um, but I, I want to make a couple of quick comments about that. Let me take a look. I think that you can just plug in that GLD.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. I have that here.
1: You better believe it. Um, <laughs> you've got a 30 year mortgage, 3.76. And last week it was 3.81. So still a very historically low. Rates, if you have an opportunity to look at refinancing. Unbelievable, yeah. Come on.
2: I, I just heard that. Thing.
1: What, what, what one did you just read then? The 30 year? 30 year mortgage average here, according to uh, Bloomberg, is 3.76. Yeah, I
2: just heard this morning uh, 15 year mortgages uh, average is below 3% now, 2.97%, wow. lowest in history. In history. Since they've been recording these things. So, pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah, so GLD, this, uh, you wanted the month returns, is that right? Yeah, I was just curious for the month of May what's kind of gone it's on. It's down 6%. There.
1: Okay. So interesting because I think a lot of people are using gold as a hedge against a stock market decline. That's just an example that that is not the case in every period of time and in every situation.
2: Right. And you have uh, TIPS, just another um, inflation hedge. TIPS, uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, I'm using the TIPI shares, uh, is up 2% for the for the month. Okay. So a 2% move in one month for,
1: yeah, you know, pretty interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Um, crude oil, 101. It was at uh, 106.73 last uh, week. Um, what else we got? So over the last year, you got the Dow down about 1.4 now. Your S&P down 2.59%. The FTSE down about eleven. The Nikkei down eleven point eight seven, and uh, there you have it. Let me just take a look at the ten-year ten-year AAA corporates three point six six. So that yields down from three point seven four. Hang on a second. So uh, read that again. Ten-year corp- uh, AAA corporates are uh, this week. This week the yields three point six
2: six.
1: Wow, it's what more than double the ten-year treasury. Pretty credible. Yeah, so you have a spread then on uh, 10-year corporates of uh, 2.09%. That's pretty attractive. Over the uh, 10-year treasury.
3: Yeah.
1: In the five-year, um, it's, just, it's .43 uh, is the spread. Uh-huh, okay. So you've got uh, 10-year munis, average here 1.86, uh, the tax equivalent yield. I think we're using a 28% bracket. It's
2: 2.59. Wow. Um. Yeah, so those treasuries keep out very very uh, selling like hotcakes these days.
1: Yeah, hotcakes. So that's just a general overview. I didn't read everything. This okay,
2: time. go ahead, Ethan. Well, it's pretty interesting. Thanks, Ken. Um, one one thing I we talked about at the beginning of the show was we just kind of reviewing the the Facebook um, phenomenon. Um, yeah. We've talked about it a little bit here on the show, at least at different times, but some of the uh, statistics prior to it being offered. An initial public offering were pretty staggering. I thought maybe we'd spend a few minutes on that before we, we go on. How much time we got? Couple of minutes. Okay, great, great. Uh, well, so between 1980 and 2010, and then tracked the the three year subsequent performance of uh, initial public offerings during that period of time. And uh, his conclusion was that um, if you bought after the initial IPO um, that I, those IPOs on average lagged the general market index by 20 percent. so you had a negative return of 20 percent uh, on average for those initial public offerings, which is basically what we talked about. I mean it's very very risky. I mean, we knew that going into it right. that uh, the research showed that it's very difficult on average anyway to make money in IPOs. And then it also uh, highlighted some other IPOs, which I'm not real familiar with, but um, you might be, and maybe Simon is. Um, <laughs> that happened recently relative to social media. Um, maybe uh, read a couple of those here. <laughs> Simon. Well, All right. Only because he's really, you know, he's… He's always uh, moving and shaking. He, he knows about these types of things. Right. Let me exactly. ask him. A, I'm going to give you a quiz here. Have you heard of Yandex, Simon? Uh, no, I haven't. You have not? <laughs> no. It's Russia's most popular search engine. Really? Yeah. No. Anyway, Where have you been, man? It's down 28 Not in
3: Russia. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you're an international man. Of uh, mystery. So it's down 20% from its initial IPO price last May. Have you ever heard of uh, Zynga?
3: i heard of Zynga, yeah.
2: Okay. Well, they, apparently they raised a billion dollars last December. It's down 5% below its initial public offering price. And maybe uh, have you heard of RenRen? Uh, Ren- Ren?
3: i remember heard of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, baby. Yeah, apparently yeah. they're the Facebook of
2: China. Um, any guesses as to how much it's down since it's an initial public offering price, either Ken or Simon in this room? Any guess? Uh, 30%. Ah, try 76%. Holy mackerel. It's down 76% off its IPO price, which is wow. incredible, right? That is incredible. So these are all some recent losers. Uh, one more for you. I'm not sure about this one. Pandora? You guys know Pandora. Oh yeah, I listen, we listen to. Okay, it. we all know it's that Pandora. one. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. I actually have that on my phone as well. That little You love it. Location. You love it. I do like it. Anyhow, it's down 37 uh, percent from its initial 2011 IPO price, and uh, some exceptions to this general trend: LinkedIn and Groupon. Both of these are actually up quite a bit. Um, Groupon's up 37 percent, and LinkedIn is up. That well, looks like 13 percent since their initial public offering price. So. Just some things out there. One of the things I thought was fascinating though was, uh, the amount of, uh, of, uh, money represented by the initial public offering of Facebook and what that meant as the valuation of the company. Right. And, uh, it, this is gonna, this, is, this blew my mind when I read it, so, uh, it's pretty incredible. When, when it came out at $38 a share, actually in this article here it says, uh, if it comes out at $35 a share, so we'll go with that because that's what the numbers are based on. Um the, the buyers of the company of Facebook at the time of IPO at $35 a share are paying close to 200 times earnings per share. 200 times earnings. Wow. Based on the prior net income, of uh, 2011 net income of $668 million. Now, I don't know anybody. Blew your mind. That blows my mind. I and mean, Ken, what's the average, like on the S&P, what's the average historical uh, price earnings ratio? Somewhere, uh, be around 15. Yeah. In that range. So 15 would somewhere be a, sort case, of a somewhere. normalized price to pay yeah. for something, uh, price to pay for stock. And this one was close to 200 times earnings. I can't, I can't even believe that. So very, very, very high price relative yeah, to what right, the earnings right. are. Um, when it came out, it also had a, uh, <laughs> this is another fact that blew my mind. And Simon, maybe this blows your mind too. Um, the total value of the company, when it came out of IPO, is more than Starbucks, Dow Chemical, and Panasonic combined. I and mean, we've all heard of those companies; they've been around yeah. a long, long, long period of time. They make billions and billions of dollars. Just to put some things in perspective regarding Facebook. And I think that's all I had on that subject. Pretty staggering. And I guess we're going for a break soon. Is that correct, or we have a few more minutes? Yeah, we we'll take a little break. I just, well, we have the few seconds here
1: until we hear the music pumping. Um, I just want to say that our point about this is not that we don't like Facebook or, or any of these. I think we're we are as free market and, and capitalistic as possible. It's it's a it's a notion of individual investors properly diversifying and using the market forces to your advantage. We'll talk a little bit about it uh, when we come back. Miracle Investing
0: Radio. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network
3: are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com.
0: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact. At EMPIRadio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome
1: back to Empirical Investing Radio. With Ken and Ethan, we we're just talking about uh, the market. We did the market overview here, Ethan, and um, you were wrapping up a discussion, a <laughs> multi week discussion here about Facebook.
2: A little bit of a ranting.
1: Um, if you do want to call in, uh, I think they give the number, but it's 866 472 5790. And, uh, who's our friend that had some good questions there a while ago? Uh, George or Bob or? Oh, yeah, Frank. Frank. Uh, Frank, if you're out there, give us a buzz, you know, shoot us an email, contact yeah. at EMPI radio.com. And, uh, we're always happy to help on a personal level, um, with, uh, no fee, no obligation or anything, but we'd be happy to take a look at what you're doing. So again, feel free to contact us throughout the week and, um, we'd be happy to evaluate your portfolio and, what kind of finan talk about the financial plan, if any, that you have in place and how you design and develop a retirement plan, which we think everyone should have and be very comfortable and confident. The that is the one thing we do have control of. The day-to-day market fluctuations are are, are not under your control or our control, or anyone's control. So as we were going on the break, Ethan, I was just commenting about what you were saying about Facebook and saying, hey, it's not that we're anti uh, investment or new companies or ipos no no. it's the idea that the way that these securities get hyped as if someone should be putting capital into them individually and you start to abandon the principles that we think that the 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 science shows us on how we should invest and that is within the context of a very diversified portfolio
2: yeah and i think you know one other thing just on that uh... We cite the studies a lot of times in, in, our conversations on the radio and with clients and, you know, we, we were aware of the studies that have come out on previous IPOs and we like to see, well, how has these things, how have these things played out in the past? So we take our, we try to remove ourselves from the, the, current situation, which is, oh, should I own or not own Facebook? You know, am I excited about it or am I not excited about it? I think that requires a, a different type of decision relative to looking into the past and see how these things have played out over, over in the past. And would probably lead to different conclusions because it's easy to get excited in the moment and say, Oh, I want some of that or, you know, overlook, overlook things that if you had more time to, and more facts to review, you, you may not overlook and it may lead to a different decision. And so that's one thing I like to do. And I'm glad we do that in our, in our here at the office and yeah. with clients that we work with because it helps, helps us take a, a step aside from our own, own experience and help us gather uh, knowledge from other people's experience, which is oftentimes hard to do in life. That's true. So.
1: One other comment, Ethan, and then we'll again move into your the rest of your agenda for today. But I think it's critical and it's very important, and it's very difficult for people to stay focused. Yeah, uh, all of us, as in, in if we're investing or putting our money, a lot of times we get antsy and we want to move things around, particularly when when our patients, you know, the studies you just mentioned. Studies, it's kind of true, but studies show that no matter how long our our actual time frame is, most of us have. A tolerance for, in reality, a time frame that's maybe a year or less. So we sit down and we put a financial plan together that says, hey, over the next 40 years, this is how you'll go through, you'll get through retirement. This is how you'll, you know, have the money that you need to do all the things, which we know in that period of time, there will be some very difficult markets. And sometimes those difficult markets go on for a decade, for example. Um, I think most of us, though, have this very short-term, one-year type of time horizon. Everything's great until it doesn't go great for the year, and then suddenly we get antsy and itchy to start abandoning things.
2: Um, We've got to change,
1: change gears, change right.
2: plans, got to do something.
1: And last week we talked about the, the story in the Oregonian about how we as individuals right. are more inclined to take bad And biased advice, if it scratches us where we're itching, then unbiased, low-cost, or even free advice, Right. right? Now, we do our best, in our opinion, to provide unbiased financial advice. And the portfolios that we design and how we do the planning, we ultimately are doing it to try to give our clients the highest possibility of success over their entire time horizon. We don't sell into the short-term fear and greed. But a lot of, as we saw in that study, right, a lot of Wall Street firms and then for their brokers and advisors that work within these companies are more than happy to take your money for providing short-term advice that makes you feel good but ultimately hasn't been shown to, to be the best for you. Right. And where that leads, and I was just... Meeting with a group and, uh, and, uh, we're looking at the context of, hey, right now we, we just talked about how low interest rates are, right? Then you have coupled with that in the last, uh, year here now, stocks haven't done great. So what, what kind of an environment is that for the average investor who's, who's paying close attention to their portfolio? Which, by the way, People tend to pay more attention to that performance number when they are working with a professional than when they're
2: doing it on their own. But well, because wh- I think part because they actually know what it is. Yeah, if that's, by, yeah. If you know what I don't, you're not working with a professional who shows you what performance you, you've experienced. You don't. You're really left to guess and, and sort of. I'm not sure, but I'm guessing it's around this because no one actually keeps track. It's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, you know, portfolio performance is not an easy thing to calculate. Well, what 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 this environment is
1: ripe for then and what i've seen is a flood of products that try to address what we are all fr- what individuals may be frustrated with stocks not doing well in the short term we know that there's a tendency for us to take the short term and project that indefinitely into the future right so people down on stocks and low interest rates on creditworthy fixed income securities right What is the risk that presents then? Well, what it presents is that there are many product purveyors that are happy, more than happy to create products that try to shift your focus off of long-term investing, right, and the principles that go with that, that when you build a a prudent strategy, you realize that there will be times where it doesn't perform great, right? There will be times where you have low interest rates and – poor performing stocks, which means both sides of the portfolio may not do, be doing lights out, you know, out of the ballpark type of return, but it's the idea that at any one year in the future here, and it's unpredictable to know, you might get five or six or ten years worth of return in a very short burst in right. stocks, right? Sure. So the best approach that's been shown statistically is one in which you design an asset allocation and... You diversify across as many of the viable asset classes as you can. You rebalance in a disciplined way. And you adjust that allocation, in my view, um, over a period of time that adjusts relative to your time frame and your personal circumstances, not short-term market fluctuations. If you are going to adjust, and we've talked about different approaches to that with the rebound, defensive rebalancing and those kinds of things, that you're doing it in a very disciplined and systematic way. Now... There may be times where you do decide that you need to get out of the market, right, because you just can't psychologically handle it. But if you are going to engage in an approach like that, our advice then is to say, what's the most empirical way of doing that? Yep. And it's having a very systematic way of how you get in and out of that. We'd be happy to talk to you about how you might do that. But my point being where you have to be very cautious, and I'm, I'm begging you if you're listening, do not fall victim to, well, I've found this system because I was just interviewing these guys yesterday where I can get higher interest rates than what's available. So if, if you're looking at things that have a 7% interest rate or higher in an environment right where 10-year treasuries are at 1.6%, you need to be asking and fully understanding why, why you would expect to realize that kind of return.
2: Right, and then, you know, it's, you raise a good point, uh, Ken. And we, I, think, I think we may have touched about on this before, but one, one of those other products out there that are very sort of hot right now um, are these uh, sort of variable annuities that have certain guarantees in them. And uh, I, I read an article probably six months ago. Uh, it's called uh, Annuity Analytics. What is the guaranteed rate really worth? One of the main appeals in a low interest rate environment in and a, a, a stock risky environment like we're kind of in right now uh, to these type of products, is that they they have the word guarantee all over them. Mm-hmm. You know, I can get a guaranteed rate of X percent. And a lot of times, you'll you hear a, a, a typical sales pitch will involve, "Hey, well, I can guarantee that you'll have a seven percent growth rate per year over a certain number of years, usually ten years. And at the end of that ten years, we'll have a, a guaranteed base amount from which I'll I guarantee to pay you five percent on for the rest of your life." Right. This is pretty common. Right. Uh, they're available all over the place. And boy, that sounds really good. Like you you explain it just like that? Hey, you use the word guarantee I use the word guarantee twice just in, in two sentences. You like that. And don't I like you? both the numbers behind the guarantee, 7 and 5%. All that sounds pretty darn good. Yeah. But really the real real issue is that we don't understand what the guarantee is all about. Um, and in a way they're these are written, they're really speaking, you know, Celsius or, or Fahrenheit when we're used to hearing Celsius. So it's not 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 quite the same language exactly. And I have a little bit of an example if you don't mind I could spend a second going through it. All right. So here's a, here's a, here's just how this would typically work, and uh, in, a, in a simple interest rate environment, which is a lot of times how these annuities um, are are calculated, they're not compound interest rate. You know, it's not compound guaranteed seven percent a lot of times. It sometimes is simple interest. So let's say it's uh, year one, and you want to have uh, uh, you have one hundred thousand dollars to invest, and you can get guarantee seven percent over the next ten years per year. Well, on in simple interest, it actually Calculates out to be about five point four five percent per year. You know, you're, right. you're getting seven percent only on the base of hundred thousand uh, dollars. That doesn't grow every single year. At the end of the ten years, you'll have one hundred seventy thousand dollars, and then you can get a guaranteed growth factor, or sorry, a guaranteed withdrawal factor of five percent of the hundred and seventy for the rest of your life. Well, that translates to eight thousand five hundred dollars per year, which sounds okay. Okay. But here's here's the deal. The real question is, how much would you pay today? For eight thousand five hundred dollars of income in ten years, well, most people don't know off to top of their heads. You have to actually go look at it and do some research. The answer is sixty thousand dollars. You could you would pay sixty thousand dollars today, okay. not a hundred thousand dollars today, but sixty thousand dollars today to guarantee a payment of, for life of eight thousand five hundred dollars. In other words, you're overpaying significantly. Right. And if you actually run the guarantees through, based on your life expectancy on the, at the time of purchase the embedded investment rate of return for some of these things is 0.36%. Wow. 0.36%, which is that's very, very low, and well below the guaranteed 7 and 5%, which you're expecting, right? Right. So the, the math doesn't add up uh, in terms of the, meeting the guaranteed expectations, and you really have to understand these things thoroughly before you make a decision to buy. Um, nobody would be happy with 0.36% for the rest of their life.
1: So are you... Are you uh, implying that the insurance companies who are issuing these are using their mathematical wizardry to reposition these in a less than ethical way? Well,
2: certainly less than. Um, again, they're speaking two different languages. Yeah, is how I phrase. I don't know that you know. It's hard for me to say that everybody who sells these things are, are doing it on purpose and don't. You no, know, no, I, I have a hard time saying everybody's bad out there, uh, but. Well, not buyer, be, buyer beware, for sure. No question about yeah. that. I mean they're they're definitely using
1: every possible way of framing something in a way that makes you feel good about buying. You have to uncover what the reality right. of it is, right? Yep.
2: And so that's one example. Another example. And I think
1: I, don't, I think that that is wrong. Uh, I just, yeah, I think so too. Okay, yeah, I agree. With We're that. in
2: agreement with that. Hundred percent. Okay. It um, doesn't change much if you have a have happen to be viewing a compound. Um, situation where you have, it's 7% per year compound interest. Um, the, the embedded investment return over the life expectancy again goes from, again, 0.36% in my first example, um, to just over 2% per year in a compound rate of return scenario. So that's how much the guarantee is worth basically. Right. So if you have an equity linked, uh, index annuity, um, a lot of times they'll throw that out there too. Hey, will you participate in someone in the growth if there is any? But a guaranteed rate of 5% or 7% or whatever it is. None of those things, in terms of the guarantees themselves, um, offer much, per- much much growth opportunity. Um, again, these aren't even just for inflation, mm. right? I mean, right. If inflation is three percent, like it has been historically over the, the years, you're still negative one percent per year <laughs> with the compound return of this variable annuity product. That sounds good. Yeah.
1: So I wanted to. Ha- All right. Well, I appreciate that. Beware if you're looking at if you are being uh, offered various guaranteed annuity, or other types of products, and you'd be willing to share that with us. We'd love to dissect it for you and talk about it.
2: And, um, yeah, just one one last thing, I think, with this. Uh, Yes, please, please. When you're, I don't know, actually, I lost my train of thought. I uh, I had one more good point. I'm sure it was good. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay. The more complex these things are, the more you can be sure that they're not in your favor. As, right. as a person who's pur- potentially purchasing them. These products pay very, very high commissions to the salespeople who sell them, and that's to incent people to, to make the sale on these types of products. But but generally, they're not the best in, uh, investment option for, for the buyer
1: anyway. Like I said, it seems that the, the big companies who are product purveyors are all too willing to come up with th- – there's really a lot of times nothing innovative in terms of there was no research or they didn't get ahead of anything in terms of, hey, we yeah. should be – it's something happens in the market. They realize that we are very emotional and <laughs> beings and then they create a product that's really inferior, in my view, um, but utilize whatever's going on at the time to sell it. Right. 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 So, hey, we have low interest. We People are, are afraid – retirees are afraid of how am I going to get my income, Right stocks aren't doing good traditional investment asset classes suddenly it's non-stop gold commercials right cuz <laughs> gold's done okay right prior to this last month but or it's you know well on, on the institutional side the stuff that i'm getting bombarded with now is just nothing constant alternative investments right constant you know this idea of absolute return and we need to have something in the portfolio that that isn't necessarily a stock or a bond, and you know when you when you start to dissect it, and then you start tearing apart the fees and the tax issues of how they're trying to do what they're doing, and then you look at the viability of it, most of them just don't make any sense other than people – we can sell it right now more than ever because people are down on these other asset classes. Right.
2: We went through the last crisis, and this is this is the type of thing that was selling like hot kicks. Right. Going through, the sales for these things are going through the roof. And so I'd encourage you to here's I'll give you the name of the article uh, once again that that it slices this up and and translates the guarantees into something we all understand, uh, which is a cash equivalent yield uh, effectively, which is obviously the number we right, we understand right. and, and as the annual return, uh, is annuity analytics. What is a guaranteed rate really worth? And I encourage you to just go ahead and Google that search. Do a Google search for that, and you'll find this article. And I'm sure you'll find it very, very interesting reading.
1: All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back for our last segment, Empirical Investing Radio. Thank you.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
3: time here on voiceamerica.com
0: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan.
1: All right, welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. We're in the last segment of the show today, and uh, Ethan, what else do you have on the uh,
2: agenda? Uh, well, uh, one of the last things was um, yeah, an article I came uh, cr- came across here recently. Talk to me. Um, that summarized some of the topics at the uh, FPA convention that just recently was held a couple weeks ago. I didn't have a chance to attend, but I, I subscribed. Oh, you busy guy. I, I subscribed to a, a service that kind of uh, um, sort of summarizes these things and, and talks about uh, what was presented and. Uh, some of the ideas that were discussed at, at these things. Uh, and one of them was, I thought, pretty interesting. One of the speakers um, at the uh, the FPA, by the way, is the Financial Planning Association. Jenny, um. And uh, they had their convention a little while ago, and one of the speakers uh, was uh, Austin Goolsbee. Do you know Austin Goolsbee, Ken? Uh, not the Goolsbee. Okay. <laughs> well, apparently, I'm not familiar with him either, but I, he's uh, the former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors um, and currently a professor at the University of Chicago. Oh, okay. So, um, pretty big time fellow, I'd imagine. Okay, cool. Um, and he talked a little bit about the, uh, the debt crisis in Europe and sort of the compare and contrast that with the, the debt crisis we experienced here in the U.S. here not too long ago. And, um, so maybe I'll kind of go through this article a little bit and we can stop any time and discuss a couple of things, but it raises a couple of interesting points, I think. Okay. Um, so he goes on to say in, in his presentation, um, the main issue with with the um, U.S. crisis in our financial system was that we had to recapitalize the banks. So recapitalize the banks basically meant that uh, well we had to, we had to do that first of all because the assets that a lot of the banks held were no longer marketable. <laughs> we didn't know what value was assigned to these assets in the banks. Where you know if you have a marketable security, we know what the prices are relative day to day, and they ask, they occupy a part of the, the balance sheet. And if they're not tradable, if the value goes to zero, clearly there's a problem. There's an imbalance there. You know, they owe too much debt relative to the assets they have. And so what the government did, uh, our, our the U.S. government did, was come in and basically purchased some of these assets and took them off the balance sheets of banks and thus recapitalizing the, the, the many of the banks in the U.S. during the financial crisis. And we all know this as, as TARP, right? The, the Congress passed a, a bill that uh, basically gave authorization for the U.S. government to come up with $700 billion to buy these assets. Right. We're all familiar with how that, that worked yeah. out in, or in terms of what happened and um, wasn't very popular at the time and still isn't very popular now, even in the news. I mean, everything you hear about it is, you know, where's my bailout, that sort of thing, right. which is understandable. There's, it's not good to be in a position where that has to be done. Um, but he goes on to say, which I think is very interesting, here's some of the lines from the, the, uh, uh, the presentation. Um, when the last of these toxic securities were finally sold off after the mortgage market had finally stabilized – when the loans were payback and the company's exiting the tarp program when you're factoring the value of the stock positions of uh, some of the some of the stock is still being held in government accounts uh, things like aig for example but the total cost of the bailout was exactly zero in other words all the money that was put into the in right. the system came back out okay so it was a net net zero cost to the government and in actuality, it looks like they they're making a little bit of money as they sell the, some of these um, stock positions in gm and in aig so that it didn't cost anything, I mean, in terms of the actual out of pocket, the taxpayers. Okay. So that's the first thing I think that most of us probably aren't aware. We usually, all we heard of was the bad news going into the thing, and hey, I'm not really sure what the, the update was on the results. Well, the results are pretty darn good. Uh, things stabilized in the U.S. Uh, certainly they're not perfect by any means, but comparatively uh, where they probably would have been without this type of intervention, um, I think it was a, a good idea. Okay. A pretty novel way of dealing with a crisis that uh, many people did not foresee coming. Um, let, me, let me read on here a little bit more and, and uh, see what he says and contrast that with the European crisis basically he says the lessons of TARP he concluded should be this this is how you do it if you don't want to spend a uh, trillion dollars uh, in, in fixing a problem that you couldn't uh, foresee coming um, it may have been at the time the most heated thing the US government had ever done in history but it has turned out very very well so it didn't really cost taxpayers anything um, I guess I should also take a step back he examined, historically speaking, how, how these things have worked out in the past when there's been financial crises.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And he said it based on his his studies of past um, banking and debt crises. It wouldn't be uncommon for uh, an economy to spend 5 to 10% of GDP on fixing a problem like this. And he translates that to uh, the U.S.'s sort of mega economy because it's so large to be about a trillion, trillion dollars. So it should have cost about a trillion dollars to fix this thing. But indeed, it costs far less Seven hundred billion, and in the end of the day, actually cost zero because taxpayers got the money back. So he's, he's saying he's a very big fan of how this worked out. Okay, he says this is an excellent, excellent way to handle things in the future. He loved it. He loved it. Worked out couldn't have couldn't have worked out better. Even though it wasn't perfect, obviously, he's saying that it really couldn't have worked out better for the U.S. All right, that's his first, sort of first stance anyway. And uh, the reason why that primarily worked is because the U.S. government. Along with giving them the the, the assets or the money around to buy these assets that were toxic, was to say, "Hey, bank, you have to open up your books so we actually can see what's on your what's on the books." So we can see, or no, so there was no surprises here. Public, the public, or I don't know, it's the public exactly, but um, the government entities which provided the assets could look at the books and say, "Hey, look, this is this is really what's on here. This is a, an actual accounting of what's what the situation is," and so everybody can gain confidence that what the banks were telling them or the public was actually accurate. Okay. One of the main failings that's happened over in the European uh, arena, stepping over there for a minute, is that this has not happened. The European banks, we hear today again that Spain has, uh, will have to bail out one of their banks. But, right, a, but right. again, the bank itself is not being held to task in terms of, hey, let's see how bad this problem really is before we give you any money. You know, they don't want to tell, they, they don't want to open up the books, as it were, and let it be known to the public or even people who's financing these things to, um, uh, to be, you know, kind of come clean. What, what is the exact situation? Yeah, what's going on? In fact, they haven't they haven't made that um, uh, main point yet. But they haven't forced them to do that. And I think until they actually do come, you know, do that, it's going to be difficult to know what we're actually dealing with, right, and consequently, right. don't know how to solve the problem. So it's very possible this thing this thing over in Europe could linger on for quite some time. Even though Europe has had a very good recent and good example of how best to deal with that crisis, i.e., what happened in the U.S. Right. They're right. not using that as a blueprint, as it were. Uh, when in fact, they probably should now, obviously there's some more some things that make it a little more difficult uh, in Europe. Uh, one of those being that there's not just it's not fifty states or seventeen different nations in the euro and each of those nations are sovereign Okay. right um, And I guess in the US we have a federal system and over in Europe they don't have that yet you know they have a, a common currency of course, but they don't have a, a common um, centralized government for all all governments to right, right. to be represented and so forth. So it makes it much more difficult to make uh, decisions like that. But indeed, I think that's what's needed to get this thing through, and um, our 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 friend here um, thinks that's basically the same the same thing. uh, Austin Goolsbee. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Let me see if I can glean some other information from this article. I thought it was pretty pretty neat. Yeah. Oh, the other thing was this: Um, the European Central Bank, you know, the Fed, as we all know, um, or maybe we don't know, but the Fed has been making a made it a priority basically to buy U.S. Treasuries over the last several years as a part of the uh, of, of their dealing or helping the U.S. deal with the crisis. Um, and that's indeed par- partly why U.S. Treasury rates are so low. They've increased the demand and then obviously the, uh, the yields have con- consequently uh, fallen. The European Central Bank uh, has not been doing that either. They have not made it a point to buy um, European government bonds. Uh, that would allow, uh, European countries then to refinance their current debt at lower rates, basically. Right. Um, um, you know, in Greece or in Spain now, which is, uh, becoming an, an emerging problem, uh, the, the, the cost of debt there is soaring, basically. You know, it's, uh, I think the 10-year loans were like seven, near, near seven percent, which is very, very high. Uh, it, particularly relative to the U.S., um, you know, 10-year treasuries there, are yields are very, very right, low, rate. right? So there's two main problems. One of those is that the European Central Bank is not buying debt, allowing uh, their banks over in Europe to to basically refinance their their debt. And then the second thing, which I already mentioned, was that uh, the Central Bank uh, has not required banks to open their books and reveal really what is exactly on their balance sheets. So that's sort of a brief summary of all this stuff, but uh, it it makes it very, very difficult. I mean, there aren't a lot of good options left, uh, in fact, Unless they they do some of these things, which we've outlined in, in the article here, right? Um, let's see here. Let me see if I can scan this briefly and uh, have other any other main points that I wanted to highlight. Oh yeah, one thing which is interesting um, with with Germany, obviously the largest economy over in Europe, um, they have a situation where their productivity has continued to go up. Right, you know, even after they uh, eastern and western Europe, uh, Germany um combined their economies, there was some um, some difficulty with that a um, decade a decade or so ago. They've overcome that and they continue to be the the real strongest economy in Europe. And when your economy is very very strong, one of the things that usually happens is that your currency rises. It allows you allows you to um or allows other countries I should say to have uh, their currencies drop relative to the, the German currency and their goods be more um, more affordable basically so they can compete with Germany you know um, and that's kind of the problem with the US and China right now right China isn't allowing their currency to get strong enough uh, which hinders the US's um, competitiveness right right um, because they have the same currency you know uh, Germany and the rest of Europe this isn't allowed allowed to happen. And that's why there's also some of these these issues that are kind of building up in like a, a tea kettle, right? But right. pressure building up. There's no real release valve for these things to fix themselves where they normally would be uh, without the, the one currency system. So these things are very very complex, obviously. But uh, um, I'm not sure how this is going to unwind. To be honest with you, you know, it, maybe Greece leaves the euro and they start printing drachmas that allow their currency to depreciate, allowing them to pay off their debt, you know, because it'll, it'll be worth less effectively. Right. Um, but if that happens in Spain. You know, Spain's a huge economy, man. It's a it's a really big economy. Yeah, Greece is
1: 2% of the European GDP. Right. So it's pretty
2: pretty small, actually. Pretty tiny. Uh, but if something happened to, to Spain, which is, a, I think, the third largest economy or, or so, or maybe fourth largest economy, um, still very large, you know, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, uh, if any of those have problems in this situation that are not resolved reasonably well, it could be a huge, huge problem. Um, and not just lead to um, a long-term recession, but maybe something more drastic even than that. So there's some big, 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 uh, big problems over there. And right. I hope they take hope that they take um, at least start to take note of what's happened in the U.S. And, and try to see what's worked and use some of those tools. So I don't know. One thing to be, uh, I always like to
1: relate this back to. Well, what does that mean for my investment strategy? Um, This information that you just went over, I mean, if you, I'm on the Wall Street Journal site, I'm getting Bloomberg, uh, reports constantly. It's very out there. You know, a few weeks ago we talked about, you know, the fact that we've got a high debt and the European crisis and what's going on with Greece. That information is 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 there's nothing hidden about that? What's going on there? The, what's 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 not sure is how they're going to get out of it, right? And yeah. The, the decisions that need to be made. I think they're saying that um, is it June seventeenth? There's a date here where Greece is going to elect um, some new, new officials, new, officials uh-huh. and then they uh-huh. can they'll be able to figure out. Well, like you had mentioned, are they going to pull out of the uh, pull out of it and uh, do their own currency, or are they going to stick in? And some of those things, but I think, um, the market, you know, that, that, that's the exact reason why the market has gone down. Yeah, for sure. And while we said several weeks ago, hey, look, you know, when you're, when you're looking at a long-term investment strategy, that one of the reasons we diversify so much is any one country. I mean, if you think back just a few years ago, uh, we, only well, got a minute here. Very few people wanted to be invested in the u in the, in the, in the us it was the exact right? opposite right yeah very interesting <laughs> yeah. And, and we had prospective clients saying hey I want a portfolio that's mostly in international stocks right outside of the us and say no we don't won't we, we don't do that unless there's a reason to wait to, to the to those countries like say we're emerging something that has a a risk return trade off but just simply doing it because we think in the short term one is better than the other and so our approach is that yeah, you know, we want to own things, but we want to own all these countries. And yeah, there might be some difficulties and some countries may stumble. But if we own a pretty large basket of all of them, um, it's pretty hard to outsmart that when that data is out there, you know, in terms of outperforming by avoiding or right. overweighting into certain um, – most of the time, those who have been successful at it, it's been by pure chance – and most of the, the reasons, because what happens is ultimately because of things that are unpredictable,
2: right? And I, uh, these things I just went over are no secret. I mean, no. the, the market knows all. The market's stuff pricing those no in. That's
1: why it. we've experienced those jobs.
2: Yeah, exactly right.
1: That uncertainty is being priced into the market. Now, what ultimately happens, like you said, hey, things could get all the time, right? Exactly, whether right. we know it or not. This seems to be something that's out there on the table, yep. but. We'll talk uh, more next week, Ethan. Actually, we're going to be—I think—we'll uh, be replaying uh, the week after that. We'll be back in the studio here live. Sounds good. Thanks for tuning in to Empirical Investing Radio, and uh, have a great week.
0: We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week.